You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Today we are discussing one of the most beloved of the Disney animated films, 1950's Cinderella. Cinderella is charming, beautiful, ever gentle and kind. And my co-host, Michael Farmer, well, Michael has his good points too. For one thing, he, sometimes he, well, there must be something good about him. Hey, Michael. Thank you for for associating me with Lucifer the cat, <laughs> one of the great evil cats in uh, in contemporary fiction. Maybe the greatest evil cat in contemporary fiction. It's hard to think is of a more the, evil one. His name is Lucifer. Is this where the evil cat trope comes from, or were they evil before this? There must have been. I mean, um, Mickey Mouse's first villain is Pigleg Pete, who is a who is a cat. That's true, but he but Mickey's also a mouse, so that's true. But I mean, your your deuteragonists, your deuteragonists here are also mouse mice, right? I could say deuteragonist, but not mice. Very good. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking of the you know when we're first introduced to the uh, to the stepmother, she's you know already evilly stroking the cat like a like a James Bond villain or something. Yeah, or Doctor Claw. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, that's I. I don't know if this is the first one, but I think it's probably the best one. L- Lucifer is a terrifying secondary villain. Deuteragonist yeah. Deuter- antagonist. I don't know how to. I, I don't know what the. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it for the protagonist, but not for the antagonist. Uh, yeah, he's he's one of the joys of this film, though. I think he really makes it great. I I was. Um, I knew that there was a lot of the cat and mouse in this um, in this movie, but I watching it again, I was amazed at how much it is. It's really it's more than Cinderella, I think. Like they're they're really um, as as you say, they're the secondary. I, I won't even attempt the Deutero thing. They they are the second secondary um, antagonists and protagonists, but they they really take a lot of the screen time. When I think they're what a lot of people remember about the first half of the movie, I, I think if you ask someone to sing a song from Cinderella, they're not—they're probably not going to sing "So This Is Love," which is a great song. They're probably going to mm-hmm. sing the Mice's Work Song, um, and and yeah. so I, I, I do think they're the ones who stick in your mind. Now, I um, I didn't watch the movie. I, did, I mean, I watched the the animated Cinderella. I did not go watch the 2015. Kenneth Branagh directed live-action Cinderella, but I did go to Wikipedia to find out who plays the mice, and the mice are apparently not in that movie. Oh, another reason not to They're see well. it, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, once again, ju- ju- just for yeah. the record, all the cat and mouse stuff was animated by Ward Kimball, who's one of the nine old men, the legendary Disney animators, and and. I think Ward was kind of worried about what he was going to do for this movie because so much of the movie is 
realistic animation. There's really nothing cartoonish about Cinderella or Lady Tremaine. Um, but Ward Kimball got Lucifer and the, and the Mice, which is just a, a series of great comic set pieces that apparently nobody but him could have done as well as he did. Yeah, he really... As I was watching, I was thinking they they really outdid Tom and Jerry, right? Yeah, who were at the height of their popularity at this point. They were winning Academy Awards. Yeah, so good job, Ward, or Mr. Kimball, probably more more respectful. Good job, Mr. Kimball. Yeah, and I think it was a really interesting parallel that I hadn't really noticed before either about the uh, you know the the cat and mouse um, kind of the the mice being oppressed by the cat and then Cinderella being oppressed by her mother and stepsisters and and they both end up kind of overcoming the that in the end. Right, and well and also Bruno, who I think I think I, I forget about every time I stop watching the movie. Bruno is the dog who lives in the in the Tremaine Chateau. And uh the, the dog is also oppressed by the cat, even though as we learn at the end of the movie, the dog could easily take the cat in a fair fight. The the weaker cat oppresses the more powerful dog, just as the ugly stepsisters oppress the beautiful Cinderella. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of even even though it uh, maybe at first glance seems like two separate storylines, I think they're really paralleling a lot of the same themes in there, which I, I think is really really great. Also, the movie would be about fifteen minutes long without the the mice. So that's right. <laughs> yeah, there's not much to it um, if you take them out. Cinderella's uh, Cinderella's part is 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 quite short. Um. Yeah. Anything else on the general overview, or should we just uh, jump in at the beginning, or where, what do you think? Where do you think we should go? Well, I, I think one thing that becomes obvious very quickly as you go through the the movies in order is that Cinderella is a huge leap up in quality, and and I mean World War Two had been over for five years by the time this is released. This is the first real feature length film they've done since um, uh, since Bambi, right? Since the war. Since the war began and took took their animators away from them and then left them financially ruinous, and and in fact it was a huge risk to do Cinderella, uh, maybe even a bigger risk than it was to do Snow White. Uh, it really was. If Cinderella was not a massive hit, which it was, Disney Animation probably would have folded. Uh, and th- this was not the last financial crisis they would have, but it's it may be the most serious one they ever had. Um, and and man, they hit it out of the park. There's this is not only one of the most successful movies ever. Uh, the the songs, three of them uh, hit the hit the Billboard top ten or whatever the equivalent of the Billboard top ten was in the in the 1950s. So the songs were massive hits, uh, and and uh, Cinderella ends up being one of the most loved Disney movies ever, and and I think for very good reason. Yeah, I agree. I think it's. It's, it almost has a, a reboot sort of feel after coming coming after the the, the string of, of the shorts, right? Like it's a princess movie again, as Snow White was the first princess movie. They really reiterate the Disney theme um, uh, that we saw pretty clearly in like Pinocchio, um, with the the whole idea of you know dr- keep on dreaming, keep on believing, and and your and and these good things will happen to you, and these wishes you know will be fulfilled, and then. Uh, yeah, they really come into. I feel like we're we're into the the kind of the Disney look now um, that we won't move move 
much away from for a while. Like, you know, you know, you kind of get into this, the, the look of the, the animals, the look of the, the humans, they, they're kind of not interchangeable from film to film, but they definitely have a style now. Right. Whereas, yeah. um, in those, the first few, they were, they were really much more hit or miss. Right. Well, yeah, and then the, especially in the 40s when, I mean, we, we talked about over and over again how many ugly human beings there are in the in the package films in the 40s. But the human beings in this movie are really, really well done. And, and one thing in particular I noticed is the importance of facial acting in this movie, which I don't think they could have done even, they couldn't have done this well anyway, even in the first five movies that we love so much. I, I mean, I the the facial acting in this in this movie is really really incredible. Lady Tremaine uh, has very prominent eyebrows that she can raise to uh, convey a, a number of different emotions. Cinderella uh, really becomes a rounder character because of the expressiveness of her face. So I mean, really, this is this is a step up on these in these very small ways that probably if you don't have to talk about it for two hours on a podcast, you don't even notice because it feels so natural. Yeah, that's a that's a good insight. The facial facial expressions, I I agree, they're they're at a much higher quality. So um, we open with um, kind of the backstory. We get, you know, Cinderella is a little girl just for a moment, moment's glance um, before her father passes away. And then um, uh, the, the true colors, I think, is the way they say it, of the of the stepmother come out. And she's she's incredibly jealous of Cinderella's um, charm and beauty, uh, wants to put forth her her own daughters, uh, the, the stepsisters, Anastasia and Drizella, um, the movie call the narrator calls them her awkward daughters, which I thought was really, really nice. Um, and so, uh, what's to put forth her awkward daughters. And so Cinderella, of course, um, is put into basically slavery in her own home. Um, and so then we start the movie with, um, this idea that, you know, Cinderella, Cinderella's inner strength is, is the fact that she believes, you know, every morning, every new dawn, there's a, there's an opportunity for, uh, for her dreams to come true. Um, Only if she doesn't tell them. <laughs> that's right. What a weird, um, yeah, weird little superstitious, uh, thing there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> I wish we had a psychologist on the show with us because I'm, I'm really fascinated with the, the central premise of her I want song, which uh, is, is dreams, a dream is a wish your heart makes. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you think about dreams as being, you're not in control of them unless you're a, a lucid dreamer. So, so these are, these are things that express your inmost desires, uh, but then also, there's the great scene where she, when when Bruno is first introduced, she goes down into the kitchen and he's dreaming, and she wakes him up, and she says, "Were you dreaming about chasing Lucifer again?" And he nods, and she says, "Did you catch him this time?" And he nods, and she says, uh, "They're going to punish you for it, or something." 
Yeah, that's bad. Don't let them find out about that, right? Yeah, yeah. so so it's it's a it's a weird like as, as usual the metaphysics of wishing and dreaming in in Disney movies is interesting because on the one hand you're not responsible for them, but on the other hand you're obviously responsible for them because it's what you really want. And of course you get whatever you want if you wish on if you wish in the appropriate way, you don't tell what you want or you wish it on the star or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but it's um, yeah. I, I I did notice that interesting parallel between um, Bruno's dreams and and Cinderella's dreams. One of the more famous aspects of Cinderella is that she's friends with the animals, right? So the other thing we see immediately upon meeting her is that she has these animals who do her bidding, not because she's enslaved them the way she's been enslaved to the Tremaines, but because they love her, because she's so gentle, because she makes them clothes, which apparently they like to wear. Um, and so they make her bed for her. They squeeze the sponge to give her her bath. Uh, they they they. They do all these things for her that make her life easier. And we've talked um, we've talked about how the the characters that are admirable in Disney movies have different relationships with nature than uh, than characters who are not admirable. We saw that as early as Snow White. We know Snow White is good because the animals are willing to come up to her. Um, so Cinderella is no uh, no exception to that. Yeah, what I, I love in this early part is the. The shoes on the birds. <laughs> I think they're so, so funny. Um, it must make it difficult to perch. <laughs> that's what I was thinking too. But as you said, they they seem to enjoy wearing them. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have anything intelligent to say on this, but my friend Jason sent me an article about um, how clothing is so central to um, to the Cinderella story. And but in this this article he sent, they didn't mention the clothing on the animals. But I think. Um, that's got to play into it too, in, in some way. Just the the way that she clothes the animals and really um, gives them by by her clothing them, she gives them uh, some sort of dignity or something, you know. In the same way that uh, you know, when when her fairy godmother clothes her in the in the gown, it gives her the ability to to be transformed into. You know, to meet the prince and all those sorts of things. I I don't know this. Oh, I think that's exactly right. It's a it's a parallel motion. And then on a on a more immediate level, uh, when you see those animals dressed in clothes that she made them, you bond with them more quickly because they're people. You yeah, know what I mean? that's right. Yeah, you, you you might like a mouse that's naked, but uh, you're going to be almost sure to love, love a mouse who is wearing an adorable costume. That's right. You wonder where she finds the time to do that, given the amount of running around her stepmother makes her do. But she she still has time to sew tiny clothes for the mice. Yeah, I think time in this this movie doesn't doesn't isn't accurate. <laughs> sure. Which is interesting, right? Because time is so important for this movie. Right. Yeah. She's interrupted right. by the clock at the beginning of the movie. That, that rules her life, and then she's interrupted by the clock at the ball, which rules her life, and then um, the the big action set piece in the movie is uh, them trying to, mice trying to get the key up to her, her stepmother's locked her in her tower bedroom, uh, while the prince is there trying on shoes, or the uh, it's the duke trying on shoes for the prince. And, and so time is super important, but you're right, like you wonder how, how she manages to get all her 
uh, how extra chores done the day of the ball, for example. Yeah, exactly. The how do you get the extra chores done? How do you get a well, and how do you get a whole ball planned? You know, in a day, uh, like <laughs> the you know the king orders the duke, like we're gonna have this ball today, and you wonder, like, well, what time? What time are they having this meeting? Because <laughs> I don't know. It's just you know they get all the invitations out that quickly, and it's the unity of it's the unity of time. You know, Aristotle says there are three unities to plays. Unity of hmm. time, place, and character. So character means there's only one story being told. This uh, this this movie violates the unity of character because there are multiple B stories. Uh, unity of place means uh, the the location doesn't change. It violates that as well because we go from Cinderella's chateau to the the prince's castle. Uh, and and then the the viol- the unity of time means it all takes place in 24 hours, which this basically does, other than the prologue. Yeah, I was wondering if there was a jump between. Uh, so we we get the initial um, scene where the stepmother gives uh, Cinderella a million extra chores because Gus Gus has um, accidentally gotten into one of the cups um, running from Lucifer and upstate upsets. I forget which sister gets upset, but anyway, does it matter? Um, it doesn't matter, and <laughs> and Cinderella gets reprimanded, right? And then uh, I was wondering if there was a skip, and it's a different day on the day of the ball because otherwise, it really seems even like, more like six six that, months later, yeah, or something like that. I mean, Gus Gus seems a little more, you know, like he knows what's going on by that point and stuff. So he's may, maybe there's a jump there, and he doesn't seem like he'd be the fastest learner. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's really, it's really great. Um, a good good movie, nonetheless. But I was I, I was a little confused at the at the timing on a few places. But um, well, and, and whether or not it does take place in twenty four hours, I think it's important that it feels like it does because I, the the idea here is she's waited for so long, right? And her her days are so uniform. She does the same thing every day. This very tedious, unpleasant life. But her her fortunes can change in a moment. And I think that's I think that's uh, I think that's important for how fairy tales work. And I, I know that Tolkien talks about this in his essay on fairy tales, which I've never read. But um, f- fairy tales often have that very fast turn. Your your life changes for the better or for the worse very very quickly. Right, Everything's good for Cinderella, and then her father dies. You know, and then she's essentially a slave, and then she's essentially a slave, and everything becomes better because. Her foot fits a slipper. Yeah, yeah, it's that you catastrophe is the way that that Tolkien describes it. It's that that sudden turn, that sudden good that comes. So, yeah, and they really get it into. I mean, that as you said, that last action p- set piece where you know the mice are trying to get the the key up the stairs. It's it really it's um, they they do a wonderful job. I think in this movie of getting her into the worst position, right? Like it's, it's like her dreams are coming true. And then right when she thinks everything's going to be great, she gets locked in the tower, you know, and she's, she's not able to escape. And then right when the key, I mean, well, that whole, the, the fact that the, the mice get the key up the stairs is incredible in itself because of, of how many stairs there are. Um, so the fact that they do it in time and, and then they're right there and, Lucifer shows up and captures them, you know? Um, they just do a really good job, I think, of just really dashing her hopes, dashing her hopes, dashing her hopes, and then 
um, and then finally getting that that sudden good turn. Yeah, yeah, and then well, and then they turn it again, right? Because they go and get Bruno. Right, which is great. The bringing bringing Bruno back, you know, from the because as you said, you barely, you know, he's easily forgettable because he's he's in the first moments of the film. Uh, and then he shows up as the footman, but that, that doesn't really count. And then, and then he's there at the end. So, um, yeah, in some ways he's, you know, to go back to the Tolkien idea, like he's, he's kind of like the Eagles, you know, like you see him just, just once, but then that's enough that he can bring him in there at the end, um, to save the day. So he restores the proper order to things, you know, the, the, the cat has been in control of the dog through artificial means and now. The dog has reclaimed his rightful place, just as Cinderella reclaims her rightful place over the Tremaines. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. Yeah. We should go back and hit some of the finer details. We kind of uh, uh, jumped all. <laughs> we were at the opening song, and somehow we ended here at the end. Um, so we should we should run back through it. Um, how do you how do you feel about the uh, just kind of that opening um, sequence where we see uh, Cinderella meet meet her her stepsisters and, and mother? Yeah, I mean like for the first time in the film, like that that opening, bringing them breakfast and, and getting laundry and all that sort. Yeah, it's 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 very well done, right? Because we 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 know immediately from where she's sleeping, and the the sort of life she has that things are not good for her. We know that she immediately has to go to work. She has to go all the way from the top of the castle down to the basement to make them their breakfast. She has to feed the hens. She has to um, give Lucifer his milk, and then she has to. Not only does she have to serve all three of these horrible women. She has to do it at the same time. So she's having to walk up this magnificent staircase carrying three trays, including balancing one on her head. And then you see the you see the Tremaine's bedrooms and you see the luxury that they're living in, whereas Cinderella lives in squalor. And it really tells you almost everything you need to know about the way they treat her versus the way they treat themselves and each other. I mean, also the fact that they stay in bed until a, you know ungodly hour where she she's up before dawn so that she can serve them I, I think it does a really good job of showing how cramped her life is yeah i think that cramped is is a good one um yeah even just the the carrying all the three things at the same time makes me it makes me feel cramped even thinking about it <laughs> so well and I, I one nice touch i think is that when she drops off their trays they immediately give her something else to do, the sewing or the ironing or the laundry. So that she's never, there's not a point in that sequence where she doesn't have something on her head. Yeah, that's right. They, re- they replace it immediately. 
There's also a nice foreshadow there because she loses her her shoe going up the steps. Yeah, she does. That's a nice. Uh, I, I I missed that. That's uh, that's good. And then, uh, of course, you've got the cat and mouse game going on at the same time. Lucifer's uh, trying to to capture Gus Gus, and, and so you get all the great uh, uh, animation there. Um, he's he stands on his tail to to match the. I don't, I don't know what it's called the <laughs> the uh, decoration at the top of the stair, um, so that he can hide behind it. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of good good stuff going on there for comic relief too at the same time. Right. Well, and, and he's so spiteful. He's he's clearly imbibed the lessons of his master because he his entire golden life seems to be to mess things up for her. When she's cleaning the floors downstairs, he uh, he tracks dusty paw prints all over everything. Right. Just because he can, which I, I don't know. I have two cats. That seems uh, that seems true to life. <laughs> we have a white cat and a dark cat, and the white cat only lies on dark clothes, and the dark cat only lies on. Uh, white clothes. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I th- I find that very like anti uh, anti like um, normally animals try to camouflage themselves. You know, <laughs> they know they're in no danger, and they just want they just want to be noticed. That's right. Yeah, Lucifer's a fairly incompetent cat, given the number of mice running around that house. That's true. Yeah, there's there's no implication I, that he's ever caught one. I mean, they have he, to have a rat trap, which means their their mouser is not doing a great job. Very true. Doesn't seem to bother him too much, though. I mean, he's he's clearly well fed. Gives him a giant bowl of milk. Don't do that if you have a cat. <laughs> You'll have to clean up their vomit. They 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 can't drink that much cow's milk. <laughs> We have to talk about the we have to talk about the mice. We talked about them briefly earlier, but the mice are the best part of this movie, right? And in particular, I know you were going to ask me about this. I allege that Gus Gus is the best secondary character in a Disney movie. Yeah, he's he's definitely he's got to be near the top. He's he's great. Although don't don't short uh, credit Jock either. Like he, the, it's really the pair of them together that makes it makes it work i think that's true because i mean one of gus's jobs in this movie is to demonstrate how smart jack is you know you know like because gus is the idiot half of the pair and and i mean jack is both very brave and and uh, very intelligent very wily uh gus gus is not really any of those things instead of being brave he's foolhardy there's the wonderful there's the wonderful scene where he when he first learns about lucifer the cat he says that gus gus is going to take lucifer and then he's uh, clearly thinks he's going to beat him up that's not bravery that's just foolishness he's not going to be able to do that whereas jack is um completely willing to do all these uh all these magnificently heroic things so that his friends can eat breakfast and get by Lucifer without that. Jack goes without breakfast. Uh, Gus carries a, a series of uh, pieces of corn that there's so many of them that he almost gets eaten uh, because he's he's so greedy. So I, I mean, one of one of Gus's jobs is to accentuate how virtuous. Jack is uh, without Gus ever being anything close to a villain, right? We love him because he's so uh, he's so dumb and uh, and cute, and so it kind of doesn't matter that he's he's no hero, uh, but uh, but he's he's there to accentuate the heroism of his friends. Yeah, that that breakfast scene is so great. 
they they do like the comedic timing on it is so wonderful because he gets all those uh kernels of corn stacked up and then uh he tries to add one more and they all go popping out and lucifer sees them and so then he's picking them up again you know and it's it's the the tension is building in that but then after he picks them up again they all spill again like i was really surprised by that because i mean i've seen this movie a million times but like the you I don't, I don't know. I would think like once is enough, but it really adds to the tension that he spills them all again and then he has to pick them up again. You know, I just, I just really, really well done. Well, and because, because the movie doesn't have a huge plot, I mean, stuff happens, but it's not an intricate plot. They can take their time on some sequences like that. And even yeah. so, the movie's only 75 minutes long. Yeah, it's not a long movie. Um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of those nice, those nice touches where, it's like, oh, this is, you know, they're, as you said, they're really putting in the time and the care in, into each scene. Which is um, what's really missing from those package movies, right? I, I mean, especially the, the run from uh, from Three Caballeros through, uh, is it Make Mine Music or Melody Time that comes second? I <laughs> I need the list in front of me to know. I don't even know. <laughs> the, the, the run from that to that... There's a lot of hastiness. There's there's hastiness in the animation. There's hastiness in the story. There's hastiness in in the the backgrounds and the colorings. And nothing in this movie feels rushed. It feels like they spent their time on every single detail, and that's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's very nice. I yeah, and it almost parallels the movie itself in a way. You know, where it's like, how does Cinderella have all this time to do these things? Like, oh, you know, now now they have the time to do it. So. Despite the movie coming out. What a year, less than a year after the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. This movie came out yeah, in think... February, I think February twenty uh, twenty fifty nineteen fifty. February yeah. it premiered February fifteenth nineteen fifty. I don't I don't remember when Ichabod and Mr. Toad premiered, but it, I don't think it was January forty nine. So they must be working on all of these movies at the same time. And I mean, Ichabod and Mr. Toad's a huge step up from everything else in the 40s. Like, I don't, I mean no disrespect to that movie, but this, this movie is, is leaps and bounds beyond that movie. Like, like this is, this is back to classic Disney instead of uh, classic Disney diet or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, could not be more different, I don't think, between these two. So in that in that scene where going back to the where Lucifer messes up uh, the floor for her that she's cleaning, I think that's uh, if you, if you want to jump into music, I think that's a good place to do it. But if you want to go somewhere else, we could. No, let's talk about the music. So I, I, you're talking about the the Sing Sweet Nightingale. Sequence. Yeah, which is yeah, which is actually the third song uh, in it because you get the opening credits song of uh, you know Cinderella. She's as lovely as her name. I don't know the actual titles of these songs. That one's just um, called Cinderella. And then uh, Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. Um, and then the Sing Sweet Nightingale. Which is and, kind of the forgotten song in this movie. Everybody remembers Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo. Everybody remembers uh, uh, the work song. But Sing Sweet Nightingale, is, it feels like an afterthought to me in terms of the soundtrack. But that sequence is really beautiful. So it starts yeah, It really starts like with it. the, the, the one of the sisters. They're, they're having a music lesson. 
Um, and and one of the sisters is is trying to learn how to sing, and she sings sing Sweet Nightingale very very poorly, and it cuts to Cinderella who is scrubbing the floors, singing it beautifully. And there's a, a really wonderful animated sequence wherein the uh, soap bubbles rise to the air, reflect Cinderella so that she's singing in harmony with herself uh, this song. And now we we talked, I think in it was in the Johnny Appleseed short about multi-tracking, right? I don't know what was happening in that track with the multi-tracking with Dennis Day, but it wasn't. It wasn't multi-tracking. He wasn't singing with himself. This, uh, I, I watched a commentary movie on this, and, and Walt Disney demanded the multi-tracking for Eileen Woods, and it was considered, you know, just brand new technology. Um, so he, he came up with that scene with the soap bubbles and the multi-tracked Cinderella's uh, when, they, when they played in the demo song. So if you're if you're wondering what effect Walt was still having on the movies, uh, I would say that's a pretty big one because that's a that's one of the best sequences in the movie. Yeah, I would agree. I'm I'm glad you brought that to to light. I didn't know that story, so yeah, that's really. I love this. I I love that scene. I'm always a little uh, disgusted at Lucifer, um, not because of the the paw prints, but just because it, he cuts the song short. That's <laughs> true. Really enjoy it. So. Uh, the songs were written specifically to be pop hits. So, I mean, they they had had big hits before. When You Wish Upon a Star, I think, was a was a big hit for Cliff Edwards in the early 40s. But they wrote the songs in this movie specifically hoping that they would become big pop successes outside of the movie. And I think it paid off. The songs are the songs really are as good as any pop music from the early 50s. Yeah, I don't know a lot of. Uh... 50s pop music that I, I do know that I, I love the music in this in this movie. I mean, all the way through. There's not there's not a song in here where I'm like, ah, uh, yeah, I could skip that one. Like, I think they're all great. Which one's your favorite? Um, it might be that "Sing Sweet Nightingale," although as you've mentioned a couple times, the mouse the mouse work song is the one that that you know pops into to my head quite frequently i find a i find a reason to to sing it and change the words and you know do this do those things that you do with songs that you, you enjoy do you do you um, want to do the sewing is that the idea <laughs> yeah that's that's it I'm, I'm secretly always wanting to do the sewing but i love that bit i love i love the idea that it, it it's it's so perfect for the characters that jack and gus think that they're going to have the major role in making this dress like they're too dumb Dumb's not the right. Dumb's the right word for Gus. It's not the right word for Jack. They're so enthusiastic that they can't see that that's not really where their talents lie. Can you imagine what this dress would have looked like if Gus <laughs> had cut it with the scissors and Jack had done the sewing? Yeah. Retrograde gender roles aside, I think it's probably best that they left the sewing to the women. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. I think what, as you said, like getting it where um, into their into their talents is. It, works much better for them and leads to a wonderful sequence. The sequence of them getting the, the beads is another one of my, my favorite sequences in the, in the film. So, And it, it's interesting because they spend so much time on the work song and so much time on the bead sequence. And then it's all completely for nothing. Yeah. Um, because yeah, the sisters just tear, tear that dress apart in, in two seconds. Right. But I think, yeah, not for nothing though. I mean, it is for nothing in the sense of it doesn't it doesn't move the the plot forward. But uh, Cinderella is clearly touched by their gesture, and um, yeah, it gives her it gives her the 
the the false hope or the hope that's removed that that drives her into despair. So in an absolutely brutal scene, right? So what, what's happened is um, Gus and Jack have collected pieces that the stepsisters have angrily declared were not good enough for them, ribbon and beads and stuff like that. They, they collect those and put them on the dress, and then Lady Tremaine subtly encourages um, her daughters to take those things back, and they just rip Cinderella's dress to pieces, and it is horrible. Yeah, it's a really horrifying scene. <laughs> Even just the way that they animate it, it's just, yeah, I mean, she's, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to exactly describe it. Like the way it's 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 cut, it just it seems very very frantic, um, very hectic. And she's you know Cinderella's trying to defend herself, but is not really able to, and it's just left in left in rags. Yeah, they it's uh, it's really awful. And then I mean, she after that she literally walks off into the shadows. She leaves the set and just goes off into the darkness. Essentially, it's it's I, I think her despair in that moment is very well animated. Yeah, they do a, new, a nice job um, in that moment in particular of having, you know, just kind of her against the darkness. They do that a couple times, um, mostly with the the evil stepmother, um, where they have her just kind of against the dark. I feel like um, it's a very effective uh, animation tool that they use there. The other song that we haven't really talked about is Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo, probably the lasting uh, the lasting song from this movie in terms of. I mean that's the one kids know, right? Yeah, we we did it in my elementary uh, choir. It wasn't really choir. It was I don't know whatever you have in elementary music class or whatever where they teach you how to sing and then you perform at the spring gala or whatever. We, <laughs> we, did we called it the chorus. Oh yeah, that's what we called it too. That's right. Yeah. So. I yeah. think in some ways that's the least of the songs here, other than the the opening Cinderella, which I didn't even remember being a song. But I would I would take any of the other songs over that one. I think that that song does what it needs to do. It's it, but it, you know that's not the one I would find myself listening to. Yeah, but it's 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 perfect in the movie, right? Like it it it's you know she's experiencing this this tremendous uplift and and you get this very poppy sort of uh, you know uplifting song to go with it. So I think it works really well. Yeah, that's true. Well, and it's it's such a great performance from Verna Felton, who's who's one of the all-time great radio actresses from that era. Best known she, to our audience, the fairy godmother. she is best known to our audience as one of the terrible elephants from Dumbo, one of the uh, gossipy, cruel lady elephants from Dumbo. Oh, I'm so glad that she got this role then. <laughs> Because, man, what a what a role to be known for is those evil gossipy elephants. I think she's the one who refers to him as that little F E F R E A K. I think that's her. That's so funny. Um, she also plays Dennis Day's mother on the Jack Benny show, where she's this shrieking harridan. So she's she's uh, she's a great voice actress, and and uh, you know her scene is tiny. She's in this movie for less than five minutes. But in some ways, if you don't remember the mice, what you probably remember is Verna Felton. Oh, definitely. Yeah, this scene, I think this Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo scene is, is got to be one of the, I, mean, I don't know, it'd be interesting. I'm sure there's polls that where people have asked these questions, but, you know, man on the street style thing, like, what do you remember from Cinderella? It's got to be 
be this this song and the whole transformation of Cinderella from the rags to the to the beautiful blue gown, right? Yeah. Well, and it's it's a really well done scene. Yeah, and it plays so well. Like uh, a lot of it is, um, you know, the the acting in it, um, where she keeps kind of setting it up where you think she's going to go one direction and then she goes another direction, you know, like the first thing you need is a pumpkin, you know, and it's like, what? <laughs> and then she needs, you know, and then they're, they're at the horse, you know, you think she's going to need a horse, but she needs mice. And um, yeah, it's all, it's just really well done. I like that. She turns the horse into something other than he t- turns him into a coachman. Talk about, talk about a topsy turvy world. Yeah. Coachman. Is that the driver? Yeah, I think that's right. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't grow up with a, uh, in a in a chateau, so I don't know what everybody's called. <laughs> that horse is straight out of Ichabod and Toad, though. That's that's Toad's buddy, uh, um, Cyril. Cyril. I mean, oh, I mean, I didn't. I didn't actually look parallel and and see if they were exactly the same. But it, in my in my mind, they they look exactly the same. He is slightly less cartoonish as everything in this movie other than the mice and the cat are slightly less cartoonish. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. He didn't have much to do. He he looks very proud uh, when she says horse, that you need a horse, because he clearly thinks he's going to get to pull the carriage. But he gets something better than that, I guess. Yeah. I, would I, rather, guess. I would rather be the coachman than the, than the horse. Yeah. Maybe if you're a horse, you'd rather be the... Well, he gets it both ways, though. Like, he gets... He gets uh, to be the coachman, and then later uh, he pulls. He's at the head of the line for the the wedding, the wedding procession. Oh wedding. right, I missed that. Yeah, the, he pulls the the wedding carriage. Um, he's he's in front of all the princess horses, so he gets both. Um, yeah, the I think the so Walt Disney said that his favorite. His favorite moment in the anime, in the the movie is is when Cinderella gets her gown. Um, I don't know that I agree with him, but it is a very it is a very striking, powerful image. Yeah, I almost never agree with him. Do you know what his favorite song was? Not from this movie, from like the entire Disney canon. Oh, uh, well, I know he loved that one in in Mary Poppins, "Feed That's the Birds." Feed the Birds, right? right. That's that's Walt Disney's <laughs> favorite song. Feed the Birds. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, not, not my favorite, but a good one. Um, that's funny. It, I mean, the yeah, just his. So his taste really defines animation, right? Like it's right. his. It's his singular voice, his singular or not voice, maybe, but singular vision. Um that is is bringing all this forward and then uh but then you disagree with him on on certain things it's just it's interesting how he can speak to everyone in a way you know like quote unquote everyone right like like very broad audience like he is the everyman but then on specifics you can disagree i don't know that's when he picks these iconic stories that are in some ways very specific and in some ways very broad so they i mean doesn't everybody feel like cinderella and so, so the movie's capable of speaking to a huge number of people, and he leaves enough details out so that you can kind of insert yourself into the story, but then makes it specific enough where it's a compelling story. 
Yeah. That's how you do mass entertainment, in my opinion. Well, it, it's working for Disney, or it did for a long time. Did you ever read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics? Yes, that's a great book. Yeah, it really is. And if anybody's interested in, like, you know, learning how comic books work, that's a great place to start. But the the point he makes in that book that's always stuck with me, and it doesn't quite apply to Cinderella in terms of animation, but I think it does in terms of personality and the, the story, is the reason Charlie Brown's face is mostly open space is that you should be able to see yourself as Charlie Brown. And if he looked too much like a real person, you wouldn't be able to do that, right? So Charlie Brown's face is is vacant so that it can be your face. And like I said, that doesn't really apply in terms of the animation here because C- Cinderella's face is fairly specific. I, I mean, it's it's not it's not photorealistic or anything, but she doesn't look like Charlie Brown. Um, but in some ways, they leave her personality a little bit open so that anybody watching can be her. Now, not as much as they did with Snow White, who has no personality. Um, Cinderella snarks quite a bit. Um, she's a, a much more fully rounded character than, than Snow White in particular was, and then uh, Sleeping Beauty will be as well. Um, but they they leave her just open enough so that whoever you are, you're Cinderella. And and I, I think that's that's really masterfully done in this movie. And she is, I feel like, her her facial expressions are, I mean, we talked about earlier, like, the fa- the facial acting, but I do feel like she's lighter in some ways than, definitely than the sisters, right? Like, the sisters have very distinctive features, um, and the, you know, the the stepmother and the the duke and the king, like, they're, they're all very very heavily drawn, maybe, is the, is the word I'm looking for. And well, then, what I would say is everybody other than Lady Tremaine, the stepmother, I would say all of them are very cartoonish, or, or what passes for very cartoonish in this movie. Lady Tremaine's a different story. Lady Tremaine looks more or less like a real person, but she, she has such heavy features that she's, you know, terrifying. Right. One of the scariest Disney villains ever. Scary because she's so realistic. Like, you can imagine... A human being doing the things she does, the the yeah. the kind of depth of cruelty for her, I think, is that uh, they've gotten the the letter for the ball, and Cinderella says, "Well, I can go too, right? Because it's for every eligible um, bachelorette in the in the in the in the country." And uh, she says, "Yeah, you can go if you do all of these things, and if you do all of these things, and if you do all of these things, and if you can find a dress to wear." And the stepsisters are mad even so, and and they they say, Don't you realize what you've said? And she says, Of course. I said if and you, you see that you see the pattern of their life with, with her, which is in a movie that runs on hope, they're forever holding hope out to her and then having it yank away at the last moment. And and the, like the depth of that cruelty is believable. Like, you know there's people who do things like that every day, everywhere in the world. And because it's believable, she's terrifying. And and to me, the best part of the movie, like like the, the best just in terms of, um, you know, what, what the TV tropes people call crowning moment of awesome, is uh, Cinderella has finished her chores but does not think that she has a dress to wear because she didn't have time to make one. And uh, she goes to her stepmother and says, uh, you know, I... Uh, I didn't. I didn't 
get a dress, so I guess I'm not going to the ball. And the stepmother puts on this really phony pity and says, oh, my dear, I'm so sorry, I guess. And, uh, and, and Cinderella goes, yes, good night. And, and, and t to me, like, that's her victory, even if nothing else had happened. The fact that she manages to keep her dignity in the face of her stepmother's really, uh, really terrible cruelty to her. Like, that, that, is the, that is the moment when Cinderella wins, even if nothing else happened in the movie. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, insight into what makes Cinderella such a, a noble character, is, is exactly that, what you just said. Um, and you see it a few times, you know, like she's able to uh, stand up to her stepmother uh, despite everything. Um, you know, in the even it, going back to the scene where they first get the invitation, she she advocates for herself. You know, she says it says, you know, like her sisters are making fun of her. Like, can you imagine Cinderella dancing with the prince? And she says, well, why not? You know, um, it says every eligible maiden. And um, uh, there's a another their point in there that i'm forgetting now where you know she stands up for herself and says no this is you know this is right um so that's that's her that's her heroism coming through yeah that's that's what makes her good enough to deserve the the fairy godmother and the fairy godmother is interesting to me because she um is explicitly a manifestation of Cinderella's hope. Because Cinderella's in full despair when she shows up, right? She says she doesn't believe in anything anymore. I think that's what she says. Mm -hmm. And and the fairy godmother says, well, you must believe a little bit or else I wouldn't be here. Yeah. So she's not Grace, right? She's not the blue fairy. She is, she is a manifestation of this quality called wishing or hope or faith or whatever whatever the, the, the metaphysics, the theology, the ethics of this movie wants to call it. But that that's where she comes from. And and she wouldn't have that, I don't think, if she hadn't been willing to keep her dignity uh, in the face of her stepmother earlier in the movie. Right. Yeah, and two things I want to say on that. One, the the first, going just to stay on this point of Cinderella and the dignity and, and her being the relatable one, I think that that is where a lot of the relatableness comes from right because she is our um when we face adversity how how do we want to face it in, in in our best selves right like how would how would your best self face the adversity and we all want to be that sort of person who is able to stand up under the oppression and maintain our dignity and maintain um maintain our own values right not stoop to their level take the high road like however you want to say it right and so that makes cinderella um, both heroic, but also relatable in a way, I think, you know, because you, you, you cast your own struggles, um, or your own, you know, ways that, you know, that you feel like you're, you're being trod upon, um, onto her. And then you see how she handles it and you want to, you want to handle it in the same way. Um, as far as, uh, the fairy godmother being that manifestation of, of hope or faith, she actually says faith, I think. You must still believe in something. If you didn't have any faith, I wouldn't be here. Um, it reminded me of, uh, when Jesus is in Nazareth and, uh, he returns to his hometown and, and they're astonished and they're like, who are you? 
uh, don't we know you? And, and it says, you know, the by this is in, in Matthew, it says, uh, he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief or because of their, their lack of faith, depending on your translation. So I, I don't know. I just drew a, a, a small parallel in my mind there. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I've, I've complained about the kind of quasi Christian, com, uh, com, uh, content of previous movies, most particularly Pinocchio, right? Which I think is a deeply unchristian movie that seems like it's Christian. I, I don't think that about this. I think the, the beats of this story are, are theologically accurate. I mean, yeah. she she shows up because Cinderella almost loses her faith, her hope. I, I, I'm using hope because I see what she is going through right before that is despair rather than doubt, and and hope is the opposite of despair for me. So so that's that's why I, I'd prefer to use that term. But um, yeah, and I think that's important too because she's allowed to suffer. She she doesn't have to just bear it with stoic dignity. Every time when they rip her dress off, it's too much for her. She she she's emotional. She's not a machine, and so you know she weeps. She 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 falls into despair, and we feel her feel for that, and we don't blame her for it either because she's already shown us that she's tougher than most of us would have the uh, the ability to be. Right. She's always she's already had that. As you, I forget how you called it, but her crowning moment, right, was 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 just before that so you've already seen her at her height um yeah it uh, she, she it's interesting because people talk about the early princesses as if they're kind of formless um and, and that is absolutely true of snow white who has almost no personality it's true of sleeping beauty is what we'll get to because that movie's not really about sleeping beauty uh it's about the the fairies but cinderella is is really pretty tough um, a pretty interesting character, pretty well rounded for a seventy-five minute cartoon. That's a fairy tale. I, I would, I would put her up there with Belle from Beauty and the Beast, for example. I, I think she's, I think she's that well formed and that strong. Yeah, that's high praise. <laughs> um, In other words, if your if your daughter's going to emulate a princess, you should try to push her towards Cinderella and away from Ariel. <laughs> <laughs> who I find deeply immoral, <laughs> but we'll get to that in forty-five years or whatever. That's right. Yeah, we'll get to, we'll get there eventually. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, I was wondering if some of that um, the the reason why the beats kind of play so well into uh, Christian themes is uh, I, I wonder what do you think think of this as Cinderella is kind of a, a modern day Joseph. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah through no fault of her own kind of ending up in slavery. Yeah. Through the jealousy of, of sisters. I mean, the, the, they really play up the stepmother a little more in this version, I think, but um, it's, you know, she's jealous on behalf of the daughters. Right. And the, the sisters definitely don't help any. Um, so there's that, there's that heavy theme of, of family dysfunction <laughs> leading to, leading to the oppression and then uh yeah a strong sense of justice finally ruling out you know god had a plan all along for joseph um and this and this one not quite the same i guess but well, you, a, you wonder if cinderella will forgive her sisters how she'll treat them when she's queen we'd yeah. have to watch one of the sequels josh oh no oh no <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> You're gonna spend the rest of your your children's childhood like 
trying to keep the existence of sequels from them? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. I'm already on that path. But, you know, I do my best. Just not let them know. Speaking of your kids, uh, did they watch this with you? They didn't. I, you know, we, we had, uh, we had talked about that, about, about having, having their voices on here and I would still love to do it, but, uh, we traveled this week for those who are following along with, um, the little bit of personal lives that we, that we drop into this. This was our, our week to travel from, uh, from China where we're visiting the States. And so it just, you know, between jet lag and, and the amount of, uh, I should have watched it with them on the plane is what I should have done, but, um, yeah, we, we didn't do it. And so, um, they have seen it before, but I didn't, we didn't want to watch it together this time. So too much, uh, too much things off schedule right now. So hopefully, hopefully for next, uh, month we might, we might hear from, from my kids. Um, yeah, I had something else I was going to say there. Oh, on the Joseph thing, I thought I, just again, like I, I, I know some people are going to think this is really reaching, and it probably is. But um, yeah, the fact that you know dreams, dreams are also so important in both of those stories, right? Um, oh, sure, yeah. Very different kind of dreams. Um, but Joseph is an interpreter of dreams, and uh, Cinderella has that that whole idea of you know dreaming and and wishing. So I don't know. I just I I think there's a few interesting. Uh, parallels that that could potentially be drawn there. Um, I don't I don't know that I have anything more to say about it than that. I wonder if any work's been done on that. Have you read the the original version of this? The it, it's not the original, the Charles Perrault version. I think there's a Chinese version of this story that goes back millennia before Perrault is writing. But Perrault is the one that this is based on. Have you have you read? Um, so I did read the Perot. I found a translation of the Perot version. I can't read in French. You, you well, yeah, and one his French is 18th century French, so actually I had trouble with it. The, um, the spelling is different. Yeah, but she does forgive her sisters in that version, in the Perot version. Yeah, she does. And well, the, the the thing that was most interesting to me about the Perot version is the father doesn't die. The father's That's still right. there, and the stepmother just pushes him around. Yeah, it's much darker to me. The the that her father, who loves her, would let this happen instead of being dead. I think Disney was wise to to kill him off. Yeah, I agree. Disney has a thing about killing the parents off too. Yeah, sometimes even when they don't need to. Yeah. But yeah, I think I I agree. the 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 story is better with him not being in the picture. And then, of course, Disney added the 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 whole mice they're not really in the original one i mean they are they are there as the the horses right are are mice but they're not there as they're not her friends yeah they're not her friends and then it it's a rat i think that that gets turned into the the coachman not a horse right i think that's right yeah and then there's there's lizards for the footman something by the way, it's worth pointing out um, the mice were not the original animals. So originally she had a pet turtle named Clarissa, which turned into her lady-in-waiting, and then, then fell in love with the prince's valet. Yes, Clarissa the turtle. And then after that, they had a gossipy crow named Jabber. Wow. And, and at that point in the story, the animals could only talk when Cinderella wasn't present. Mm. Isn't that interesting? So they got rid of everything but the mice. Yeah. 
And that was Walt's personal decision to get rid of the, everything but the mice and the cat. Yeah. Which, yeah, is a good decision. Yeah, I think the animals not talking when the humans are around is it makes sense as far as like we'll see that again, right? Like the I mean, we've seen it already with Dumbo and and yeah, we, so we kind of talked about this before, but like the animals having inner lives that that humans aren't privy to, um, you know, even even into Toy Story where you know toys have inner lives that humans aren't privy to, like that's that's a common thing. But I think it's it's interesting in this world that that they go a different way that cinderella can can communicate with them well they're the only people she has to communicate with right so i mean she she we need that or else or else her life is spent in silence she's talking to them when she's doing these monologues Mm. yeah that's very true I think we need to talk about the king. We've not really talked about him at all. A bravura performance from Luis von Ruten. He plays both the Grand Duke and the king. Yeah. These ones are a little more... I mean, both of them are, are much more cartoony, I think, than any of the other... Um, than any of the other speaking humans. I mean, the... the, the Whoever it is, the the little announcer guy, um, the trumpeter, is pretty cartoony too. Who carries, you know, brings in the the shoe and and stuff, and his wig is doing all sorts of non non physical things. But he's a um, human counterpart to Mole, I think, from Wind in the Willows. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just an adorable little guy um, to to be there. But anyway, uh, that that side, I think they're, they're the they're the more cartoony puny characters they get that great scene on the bed where they're you know the duke is um the duke is is building himself up to to tell the king that cinderella has disappeared um and he goes in there and and the king's all happy because he thinks that the prince has already proposed and then uh finds out that they haven't they end up on the bed um because the duke is running from him as the king is wildly swinging his sword around trying to Accusing him of treason, of, and um, yeah, and then they end up hanging in the chandelier. It's all I, I think it's it's very lovely, but it's very different feel than the rest of the uh, the characters in this movie. Yeah, I agree. The king, the king is a a cartoon where really more than anybody else, more than, even than the cat and the mice. Yeah, the king so does not want the prince to marry for love. His singular concern is having children. Not so much because he wants heirs, is because he seems to enjoy playing with children. Yeah. <laughs> so my friend Jason pointed out that there's a kind of a, a weird parallel between uh, the stepmother and the king, in that they're both they're both really uncaring for 
um, their their children. They 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 just want their own best wishes, and they're both quite tyrannical about it. Um, just the the king is maybe in some ways more benevolent, but in some ways not. Like he's he's quite harsh on the duke, you know, very threatening, very. Uh, I don't know. It was very. I I never seen that parallel before, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I, I like it. Maybe um maybe they get married in one of the sequels. <laughs> Lady Tremaine becomes a queen. Yeah, it all starts over again for Cinderella. That's true. <laughs> I was thinking of that though, even with him as a step as a stepfather. In, in some ways, you know, like her life, her life is getting much better, but there's there's always another tyrant, you know. Well, I think the implication is once they have kids, the king will calm down. That all, all he really wants is to is for children to ride on his back. That's right. He's just lonely. I mean, he says that he's just lonely. You know, one interesting thing though is that he he he's really down on the idea of the prince marrying for love, but when he meets Cinderella, he's completely charmed by her. Yeah. So I, I think the idea is she's so wonderful that that well, first of all, they're going to have children, I, I'm sure. Um, but but she's so wonderful that she's brought the king around to the to the prince marrying for love. I wonder what the rules for royal marriages are in this universe. But I don't know the rules for royal marriages in our universe. I'm not sure. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I don't either. Somebody's screaming at their uh, at their at their podcast machine right now. But yeah. Um. Especially after, I mean, there was just the royal wedding, Michael. Come yeah, if, if you if you knew, I, it's not just that I don't care about the royal wedding. I, I'm against Americans caring about it. <laughs> we fought a war so that we wouldn't have to care about the royal wedding. But at least Cinderella is French. At least she, at least she's she's from this country. So it's it's not it's not exactly the same as uh, Harry and what's her name, Meghan Markle. Yeah. Oh, that's the other. Uh, yeah. So when when Cinderella is running away from the ball, this is another thing that my friend Jason pointed out to me that I thought was was a nice touch on the Disney. Um, the Duke is chasing after her, and he says, "Lady, Madame, Senorita," <laughs> like trying to get her attention. You know, as though you know he's trying all these different languages, which is is maybe quite accurate from a for a European ball that there'd be many different uh, nationalities represented. I don't know if it's actually accurate or not, but it's a nice touch. They they really underplay the fact that this is set in France until the ball. Like Tremaine, of course, is a French name, but I, I guess they don't want it to be too too specific. Yeah. Well, on the king's table, when we first see the king, he's got uh, he's got the bookends of the the boy and the girl, and he says, "All we're doing is arranging so the boy and the girl get." together right and he knocks the books out of there to put the the boy and the girl together did you did you catch the the authors on the i remember two of them so i meant one is homer and one is rabelais which is a nice french touch because uh, yeah. i don't think rabelais would be some a go-to for something like that do you remember <laughs> who the what, third one was it was plato ah. but that was that was rabelais was the one i was going to mention the, so there's there's little hints here and there that this is set in france yeah i think rabelais would not be on a I mean, I don't know, <clears throat> but probably not. If it was a different country, probably would have chosen a different philosopher to put on there. 
Rob, Rabelais um, is a novelist, actually. He writes his, his novel is this enormous. It's probably as big as the book in the movie called uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel, which is about a uh, giant who gets educated by this guy Pantagruel. And it is one of the great body Catholic novels. Uh, really, without without Rabelais, you get no G.K. Chesterton or somebody like that, and it, to the point where some people call themselves Rabelaisian Catholics. Hmm. So it's 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 a nice touch. That, that that's uh, that's who that 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 is the. It would be like having Shakespeare. He's he's the the that that character in France at that era, or or uh, Don Quixote for the Spanish. It's a yeah. nice touch. Yeah, but you're right. But honestly, the the movie mostly takes place in you know it's inside Cinderella's house and then inside the palace. Like there's no. There's no really outside scenes at all, so hard to get the, a feel of a country, I think, when you're just inside a home, maybe. Well, one interesting thing for me about their house is that we're told very early on that it had fallen into decay because of the uh, the stepmother's spendthrift ways. But it, really, there's not much in the house that seems to decay, and, and I, I thought about that, and then I realized, oh, that's because Cinderella is working around the clock to keep the house looking nice. She's this... She's this force against entropy mm. for the Tremaines, and you wonder what what their house is going to look like when she moves out. Yeah, maybe she can talk the mice into cleaning for them. Oh, maybe so. They can stay on. <laughs> Since the cat won't be there anymore. No, that's right, Lucifer. Well, you know, which life was he on? Head, you know. <laughs> I had completely forgotten that they kill Lucifer. <laughs> they throw him out of the tower. Like, like he—he's the—he's uh, the only character who dies in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> lots of uh, lots of death by falling. Also in Disney movies. Yeah, TV trips calls that Disney villain death. Yeah. It's bloodless. You don't have to show a body. That's right. The last thing I wanted to talk about, I don't, I don't know how much more is on your list, is I, re- I really wanted to just talk about the uh, the backgrounds. Very, uh, very lovely, I think, throughout. Especially the so the the opening sequence, um, the credits are are really nicely done. I think that's got to be Mary Blair. Yeah, she, I know she did color on the movie. They're they're kind of pastel slides, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, of course, as a kid, I always wanted to. You know, fast forward through all that stuff. I didn't. I didn't care for it at all. But uh, you know, being watching it now, I really. I think they're they're very lovely. And then, um, I guess we talked about it a little bit before with you know Cinderella going into the darkness. Um, you know, the that use of of light and dark is really nice. Um, I think the the scene in the courtyard um, is really beautiful. 
there's a couple times where they do kind of an interesting thing where they put the, uh, you know, you're looking through the Duke's monocle, and so you kind of see the monocle shape, and then you know the scene, the scene inside it. There's, I don't know, there's just a few, a few little things in there that are are worth noticing when you're on your, uh, however many, however many times you've seen this movie. You know, there's there's a, those those little touches that maybe you don't don't see on your first time through. One of my favorite little touches is that when Cinderella enters the ball, did you notice this? The guards discreetly check her out. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all their eyes. Fine. Um, there's a really nice uh, when the when the prince and Cinderella are are walking together. There's a really nice um, ripple effect where they're, they're standing over a pond, and you see. Oh yeah. I, I thought that was really really well done. As you say, yeah. the ba- the backgrounds have that wonderful watercolor quality that really we last saw in full effect in Bambi. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then I think maybe the best shot of all is I, I can't remember I have it written down but I don't remember when it happens but there's a shot of the castle I, I think it's Cinderella like looks up at it because she's just gotten the invitation or whatever and the, the castle is almost impressionistic it's certainly not realistic it's it's done with watercolors I think it's it's such a beautiful shot um, and and it really demonstrates the the way the animation in this movie moves from realism to impressionism and back I, I think I think that's really well done. Yeah, there's there's a few uh, moments in in this one where you could you know you could freeze freeze frame it and and just have a lovely a lovely piece of not quite impressionistic like as you were saying not quite realistic artwork um, but just just very lovely very very nice the colors are nice the yeah just the, the whole thing is nice so it's a very beautiful movie it really is I I have almost nothing bad to say about this movie. Uh, and it's been so, unfortunately it's been so long since I've seen Bambi. Bambi was my favorite when we left off, and I can't I cannot remember Bambi well enough to remember to to judge whether I like this one better than that one. They're very different movies. Um, that that movie's so quiet, and this movie's not not really all that quiet. Um, but it's at least as good as Bambi. It, this this belongs with the first five movies, um, much more than it belongs with anything from the late forties. And, and fortunately, we're moving into a period where just everything is. I mean, it, it's going to be all hits from here through uh, through the mid '60s for me, other than maybe Peter Pan. Yeah, that's right. If you're listening to this, hoping to hear a lot of uh, criticalness, you're you're going to be listening to the wrong era. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think Michael and I are both really high on, on all these movies. So, I do want to. I know I always bring up what goes on in the theme parks, and Cinderella has a pretty, uh, pretty major presence in the Magic Kingdom at Disney World. So the castle is Cinderella's castle instead of Sleeping Beauty's castle, as it is in Disneyland. Um, the carousel is Cinderella's golden carousel, which I haven't ridden since I was a kid because a carousel is a carousel is a carousel. Um, and then there's a restaurant, uh, Cinderella's Royal Banquet, or Golden Table, I can't remember, it's something like that, and and I have been to this restaurant, uh, because uh, we went with my three-year-old niece a few years ago, and when you have a three-year-old, she wants to eat at Cinderella's restaurant, and so you go through the enormous pain in the butt to make a reservation for this very popular restaurant, very popular, very expensive restaurant, you do eat in the castle, um, so you you set up your time and then you you mill around and they take you up one uh, group by group in an elevator. 
to eat at this this uh, to eat in this restaurant that's decorated like Cinderella, and you can you can look out the window and see all of Fantasyland. It's a pretty nice view. The food is overwhelmingly mediocre, if there's such a thing as overwhelming mediocrity. Uh, and and it's it's very they they have all the princesses come around to your table, which is great when you're three years old, and not so great when you're how old was I thirty. 33 34 when we did this um and, and then like there's always or there was when we were there women getting engaged at cinderella's royal banquet which makes me uncomfortable I, I, I can't imagine wanting to get engaged in a restaurant like that but then the weirdest thing and the reason i knew i had to tell the story was the the waiters are dressed um in kind of 18th century garb but not fancy 18th century garb they're they're dressed like peasants essentially and they call every woman at the table princess, and they call every man milord. And I'm from the south, which means that any time the waiter brought me anything, I said thank you, because I wasn't raised in a barn. And he would say, you're welcome, my lord. And, and any time Victoria said thank you, which she did a lot because she's from the south, he would say, uh, you're welcome, princess. Which, first of all, is weird. My mother was in her 60s, and they're calling my mother princess. She should at least be the queen, but why not call her milady to match my lord? But this happened for so long and so many times that I eventually I leaned over to Victoria and I said, next time he says my lord, I'm going to say, hie thee away, Sarah, lest thou taste the black of mine boots. <laughs> she told me I couldn't do that, though. <laughs> she told me that that man had suffered enough. <laughs> <laughs> suffering every day right that is that is profoundly weird like like i i and and you pay so much money for it i don't i don't know because my father paid for it it's and it's absurd it is it's not the worst food in the world but it's not that it's not that good i mean it's it's disney disney world has really good food in some restaurants and then some restaurants are clearly there because kids eat there this is one of the restaurants that's clearly there so kids eat there but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was one of the strangest experience experiences of my life. I've done it for all of us though. So unless you have a three year old you're going with, don't bother. Or yeah. unless you want to unless you want to propose, I, I guess. Because uh, apparently, but I would say even with a three year old, like I mean, three year olds, just going off from my small sample size of kids, like they don't eat. Like we don't go to restaurants not not because they wouldn't behave or something like that, but because it's not worth it. Like Th- this was eat. this was not about eating. You pay a tremendous amount for food. Yeah, you're you're really paying for the it. experience in this. You're, you're paying to get to eat in the castle, and and like I said, all the princesses come around to your table, so you get one on one time with all of them. Eliza really really enjoyed it. I'll say yeah. that. Now she was three years old, so I doubt she remembers any of it. Yeah. But um, yeah, it 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 was a very strange experience. You do get a picture at the end, a picture of your party. There you go, with the princess. I don't remember. I didn't keep that that picture. <laughs> I, I really what I remember most is that guy calling him a lord over and over again, and and like looking into his eyes and seeing his suffering, <laughs> seeing you seeing the 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 horrible contours of his life as a server <laughs> at Cinderella's royal table, or royal banquet, or, or whatever the restaurant's called. I really wish I had said hi the away, Sarah. That's just it's terribly ironic that the. the uh... It's the Cinderella Castle that they're suffering so much in, though, right? It's true, yeah. And I don't, I don't know if they have female, if they have waitresses or just, just the waiters. We had a waiter. Yeah. Really weird. Really, yeah. really weird. Yeah. 
But I mean, so, so the thing is, though, if you want to meet the princesses, your other option is to stand in a series of lines. Yeah. So the one thing it does have going for it is if your kids want to meet a princess, this is not a terrible way to do it. You'll meet all the classic ones. I don't remember. I think Ariel. Did they had Ariel and Belle, and I think they had Pocahontas or Jasmine. But then, of course, they also had Cinderella and Snow White. Uh, but uh, man. If you were if you were a childless adult and you're thinking of going to that because it sounds like fun, it will not be fun for you. Believe me. All right, good advice from Michael on your uh, <laughs> on your trips to Disney Disney World. That's good. Um, I'm actually I'm really glad that you do those because I've 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 still yet to go to a Disney World. So um, my yeah, advice is to wait till your kids are six or seven at least. I would not take a three year old to Disney World. Yeah. So. And I, uh, well, I kind of convinced my wife. I think she had, I don't know if she had a bad experience there or just, I don't know what, but she just is really, she's much more, she wants to go to, you know, uh, you know, like a, and what, what, a, not a theme park, because that's what Disney is. The amusement park? Amusement park, yeah. Like Six right. Flags or wherever. Yeah. yeah. Valley Fair. Something like that. They're certainly yeah. cheaper. It's true. All right. Well, that was a good discussion on Cinderella. Great movie. Um, anything else that you wanted to, to say? Yeah. Next month we're talking about uh, Alice in Wonderland, which uh, that is a very different movie than this. I don't, I don't know when the last time you saw Alice in Wonderland is, but uh, it's an experience. It has been a long time, so I'm looking forward to it just on the fact that, you know, with this one I'd seen it so much that you know, I, I there's very little that surprised me other than, you know, I was trying to pay closer attention to things. Um, but I think with Alice in Wonderland, I'm in for a lot of surprises because I really don't remember it. So, so yes, please join us next month uh, for that. Um, if you've missed any of our past shows, you can find them uh, through our website, which is before they were a lot before they were dot live. Um, you can find all the shows on the Christian Humanist Network, uh, before they were live, as a proud member of the Christian Humanist Network, you can find all the shows at christianhumanist.org. Michael and I know that there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for choosing us. Um, we would love it for you to continue the conversation with us. You can find us on Twitter. Um, Michael is at Michael Farmer, and I'm at the alt with an underscore. And... Uh, I didn't come up with a good closing line for this one, so just thank you for listening. Zook, zook. <laughs> zook, zook. <laughs>